Good morning, and welcome to this week's public affairs program. I'm Jay Zimmer in the newsroom. This week, we hear from the man who's known as the godfather of flexible dieting. Joe Klimczewski, or if your Polish grandmother here is here, it's Klimczewski, is known as the godfather of flexible dieting. He pioneered macronutrient-based food intake tracking way before most of us heard that word macronutrients. We had a tangent for a while and took our headquarters to San Diego and then Nashville and now post COVID we're kind of back and very happy to be home again and, and rebuilding here in Evansville. Uh, a few things have ch changed since, I'm sorry? Okay, a little closer. A few things have changed since I met Carol Winicky at uh, uh, McClintock at the uh, Curtis building in my first home. Um, mainly I now wear vests because I'm a grandfather. Like nothing, nothing says you're on your last leg than, than putting on a vest and just admitting you're, you're, you're hitting the, the final lap. <laughs> but I do, I do want to, yeah, everybody in there wearing vests now are like, oh, let me take this off. I do want to spend a little bit of time today going through some high points I'm going to probably break, break every rule of public speaking by instead of giving you some great nugget you can take home and really understand, I'm going to give you some high points because nutrition and metabolism and metabolic science is very complex. And I don't say that because it's unknowable, but you have to know a few things pretty deeply to make it work for you. Uh, you guys are probably aware that weight loss, fat loss, re recidivism is very high. Anybody who ever loses weight, at least in our country, within one year, half of those people have gained it back. Within two years, 80% have gained it back. Within five years, the average dieter who lost weight is 107% of their original weight. So why even try? I mean, think of those stats. How many of you have a job where you go to work today and say, I have about a 0% chance of succeeding with, with my clients? That's, that's been my career for 30 years. But if you pay attention and you really do become your own best nutritionist, you can make some good things happen. So here's what we're gonna to cover today, uh, very, very quickly. The first one is going to be something that I, I coined a term about 27, 30 years ago called metabolic positioning based on this phenomena called the metabolic switch. And if you can understand this point, I'm probably going to spend most of my time talking about this, and then I'll skim some other things. But how many here have tried low carb or low fat or vice versa? You kind of flip back and forth trying to figure out which one is right. Okay. Those are juxtaposed to almost seem as polar opposites. You're either going to eat super, super high fat or super high carb and vice versa. So you would think one of them has to be right and one wrong. And in reality, they're pretty linked, and all of nutrition flows through those two methodologies, but there is one clear winner, and it's based on the phenomena of the metabolic switch. Oops, I point that way. So how many, else, how many people have also heard of intermittent fasting, kind of the latest craze? So that also is based in some truth, but you can take it to a place where it's no longer useful and can be counterproductive, but there, are, there is some truth in that that I think can help a lot of people. So let me get into exactly what the metabolic switch is and why it's so important. 
all the things you're consuming right now, you can break into three major categories, the macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat, right? So when I was in pre-med and allied health and just doing my thing in school, I was also an amateur bodybuilder. So from my teenage years, actually even younger than that, when I was pretty young, I was overweight as a child, a lot of obesity in my family. And I met some kids, particularly in grade school, that were very athletic and they kind of invited me into their group. And all of a sudden I was this little black sheep athlete in the family of all of these people who were obese and didn't care anything about health. And that continued for me. And so even though I was on this track to go to school, you know, again, because I really was impressed by the health sciences, I was also practicing that as how I could transition my athletic career, which after high school, baseball and so forth, was just to continue lifting weights. So being a, a kid from the 70s watching Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno, bodybuilding became an interest of mine and I pursued that a little bit. And I, and I was really trying to figure out all of these fitness magazines say these things, but why do all the textbooks over here say something completely different? So I started trying to bridge that gap between science and practice. And I, I just started looking at these macronutrients because at the time, all there was in nutrition, what was a series of meal plan type things. You just got the latest celebrity or fitness expert and, and ate what they ate. So it was very rigid meal planning based. I just kind of reverse engineered that. I, I, I knew how much protein we needed and why. I knew the best sources of fat and why. And even though I'm not to this point yet in the presentation talking about carbs versus fats, I, I knew what we needed, how much and so forth. So I just reverse engineered a lot of what people were doing and I could start classifying their methods as good, not so good, et cetera. But then when I was on Main Street at the Curtis Building at 27 years old, with clients sitting in front of me, I quickly learned I need to have my own methodology. I have to tell people, I can't just say go buy the Zone book or the Atkins book or this book. I needed a way to teach people to do this. So I started teaching metabolic positioning, which is out of those three macronutrients, we know we need a certain amount of protein, depending on your age, gender, demographics, activity level, goals, and so forth. Same with carbs, fat, energy balance at large, meaning calories. So we can consume those, but the real trick is you have those inside your body stored. We know we have protein in the form of amino acids, mainly in our muscle tissue. We obviously have body fat, which most of us want to get rid of some, but we also have about seven, eight, 900 grams of stored carbohydrate. That's the intermediate source of energy that keeps us functioning. It bridges the gap between the food you're consuming right now and, and having to use body fat as energy later in the day. So you guys have had blood sugar checked, right? You know what that is. You know that changes minute to minute, meal to meal. In between meals, as your blood sugar level starts to fall from the food you consumed, your body has to use an alternative energy source, or you would just kind of like a video game, your, your energy support kind of goes down and you just die, right? So you first start using stored carbohydrate. Let me catch this up here for a second on slides. So we have carbs from the food we consume we have about 100 grams of carbs in our liver, several hundred, cal or several hundred grams of carbs in our muscle tissue. We also have this stored body fat. 
our bodies actually prefer carbs as energy. Blood sugar is glucose. It's easiest to get carbohydrates and glucose heading down that natural chain of digestion. And so our bodies very simply use glucose first. When that energy runs out, we, we use stored glycogen. And then only when we need to, do we use body fat. So how do I get all the way to the end where I can start using body fat as energy? L let, me, let me tell you a little bit of a story first. One of my clients, this goes way back, a couple decades in Evansville. A woman came to me and she had every reason in the world to struggle. She said, my youngest son is 29 years old. When he was born, I had to have an emergency hysterectomy. My hormones have been screwed up ever since. Now I have PCOS and I'm on hormone replacement and I gained all of this weight. And in the last 29 years, I have never stopped trying. I've done every single diet. I've, I can lose a couple pounds and then I gain it back. And I said, well, what would be a good goal for you? And she said, if I lost 50 pounds, I would be back to my weight the day I was married. She said, but it's not gonna happen. I mean, I've tried for 29 years. I said, give me a shot. Six months later, she had lost 55 pounds. So why could she try for 29 years, never lose more than two and gain it back, and then after one meeting with me, she loses 55? Because once we get that metabolic position where we are using more body fat as energy, we can stay there or we can bounce back and forth very inefficiently. So if you imagine this as kind of a fuel gauge, you know, full in your, your gas tank versus empty, every time I consume enough calories where my body is full, those carbohydrate levels in my liver, my muscle tissue, they're completely at capacity, the tank is full. It takes me a moderate calorie deficit, let's, let's say 500 calories a day, because that's kind of statistically what we like to make easy, 500 calories a day times seven days a week, 3,500 calories is approximately a pound of body fat. So if you wanna lose a pound of body fat a week, make sure you're eating a 500 calorie a day deficit. You can lose more by also adding to the expenditure side of the ledger, you can, you can exercise more. But here's what happens. My client would get on a good roll and she would eat well and lose a couple pounds. Meaning she was in a calorie restricted state enough to create that deficit. And then she would get to the weekend and guess what? It's, hey, let's go to Hacienda, get a couple margaritas and a basket of chips. So all of a sudden blood sugar goes high enough that you have even in that transitional single meal, let alone a day or a weekend, you, you have enough that you refill those stored carbohydrate levels, glycogen, in your liver and muscle tissue. So what took you two, three, maybe four days to create that environment where you have literally moved the metabolic switch to the highest rate of fat burning, body fat usage as a, as a substrate of energy, to right back to square one. So all of that hard work for three or four days, then you blow it. Work really hard for three or four days or the whole week and blow it. We in this country are so good at dieting. We are so good at dieting. We just can't stay in that position where we lose. And if you stay there because of this evolutionary adaptation, you're, you get better 
you actually get better at using body fat as energy. You can get up to 40% what is called fat adapted, where your body is now more actively hormonally looking to use fat as energy. You can become a fat burning machine 40% better if you get there and learn how to stay there. So now you gotta bring up the carbs versus fat again. Because if, if you're thinking a step ahead, it would logically make sense that, well, if, if it takes restricting my calories and carbohydrates enough that I use those stored carbs as energy, let's just not eat carbs. Well, that will get you to that depletion highest fat burning level in about a day to day and a half. So you will accelerate the process, but nothing will suppress your metabolism faster. You will lose lean body mass. Study after study shows it's the least successful long-term, highest rates of binge eating disorder and so forth. So your goal isn't to get the gas tank to empty. The goal is to get to about a quarter of a tank, you know, push that. If you're like my wife, you get, you get the, 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 the you know, digital dashboard thing on, your, on your, your computer in the car and you wait to, I've, got, I've still got three miles to go. I don't need gas yet. You know, I'm redlining it. Like you, you wanna get close, but you wanna, you wanna make sure you're not all the way there into a negative balance because then it's almost impossible. So let me, let me skip us up here a little bit. The reason I brought up intermittent fasting is because one of the greatest tools to do what I'm suggesting is to control your food intake with both a little bit of objectivity. I, I brought my phone up here because I know you guys have a strict, we have to stop at one policy. So I need something objective. I can't rely on my subjective thoughts. Nutrition is math. Matter of fact, is there anybody here that did not make it past third grade? Everybody made it past third grade? Okay, then you can do this. Because all you need to do is add and subtract to do macronutrient tracking, flexible dieting. So when I, when I was teaching this to my clients initially 30 years ago, I was kind of a, was kind of a tough love, Bobby Knight kind of a coach. Internet didn't exist yet. So I would have to get like cases of food count books from Barnes and Noble. I would order cases a month. And I would give my clients this food count book and I would say, okay, here's your macronutrient profile. You need this much protein, this much carbohydrate, this much fat, here's how we're gonna do this. Your goal is to go home, first step this week is you're going to use the foods you like, the schedule you like, and let's figure out a good way to meet these objective goals. You just have three numbers you have to hit, remember, third grade math, and this is gonna happen. And thankfully, we've had a little better technology growth than, than just that, so we have all kinds of food tracking apps and things we can look up. But if I just stopped the presentation now, circa 1996, you guys could still have a phenomenal shot of success because you just know I need a certain amount of protein, carbs, and fat, and all of this stuff will happen. But that just gets you in the door because I want you to have flexibility so that you can enjoy this for the rest of your life. One of my first clients, I'll never forget, she brought in her food logs because again, it get manual, no internet, no email stuff yet. So it's like, you gotta go make an appointment and see Joe. I looked at her chart and it was like for breakfast, it was egg whites, broccoli, and a banana and something else. I'm like, this just sounds disgusting. Like, why are you eating this? 
And she said, well, it's, it's the way I could make the math work. Like it just, it came out to the gram better that way. I'm like, but do you like it? She goes, no, it's awful. I said, well, do something else. Just come up with better food. Like you can literally eat anything you want. I would prefer you do something that's aligned with your health goals. So don't go home and make a food plan with all Fruit Loops and Twinkies. But let's, let's get in the ball game where we can get some flexibility there because as much as I love to talk about flexible dieting as the accidental creator of that method, structure still matters. I, I, I eat the same couple things for breakfast every day. Matter of fact, 80% of the food we all eat at any given time, we're, we're selecting from about a group of 20 foods that we like. You buy the same things at the grocery store, you order the same things at restaurants. So get in the habit of this is what consistently works for me. It's predictable, and this can work. But let me, uh, let, let me get back into the, the fasting here. Because has anybody here actually tried intermittent fasting, the 16, eight-hour window thing? Okay, so, there's this, so the new craze is if you don't eat for 16 hours and then you eat all of your food in eight hours, I mean, think, think back to how that sounds like from the maybe 80s, 90s, 2000s of just don't eat after 6 p.m., don't eat after dinner, things like that. You're just giving your body a chance to do what I explained in the metabolic switch, to use all of those energy substrates in your body first, getting deeper and deeper into fat loss. But it doesn't have to be 16 hours, it doesn't have to be, matter of fact, research shows about 12 hours works as good as 16. But there's one interesting study I wanna, I wanna point out now so I don't skip over it. They, they looked at teaching people with, with biofeedback. If we can show you a new way of eating where instead of looking at even just a schedule, we add a little bit of intuitive spark to this. It's kind of another craze right now. Anybody here intuitive eating? Intuitive eating? Okay. That, that's going to be next. You'll hear about that next. That, that's the next wave. Because it's antithetical to structure. Some people argue that flexible dieting where you can eat anything you want, it doesn't have to be a rigid meal plan. First of all, it opened everybody's eyes to the fact that, wow, if I can just do that simple math, I can eat what I want. In reality, it shifted our focus from the rigidity of a meal plan to the rigidity of this numerical metric. So now we're just all focused on a calculator instead of a, a meal plan. So now the intuitive eating forces are saying, well, why don't you just eat when you're hungry, eat high quality food, but that's kind of hard, right? Like we still want some kind of plan. We want somebody to tell us what to do. A couple of people who are in my facility this morning said, we come in here because we don't want to think. We want to be, you know, put through the best workouts of our life and we don't want to have to think about this. You're the expert. You can have all of this. It, it's, it's, not, it's not either or, it's when and how. So if you can put these two things together and start getting yourself to that place where you are burning body fat as the fastest substrate of energy, body fat, and it's consistent and predictable, and you're starting to think about, well, do I really need this food now? The, the way we typically look at nutrition is when can I eat? I'm not supposed to eat till three o'clock because my last meal was at this time, so I'm watching the clock, now I get to eat. They taught people with glucometers, diabetics use glucometers to know what their blood sugar is. They said, here's, here's what's gonna happen. 
that first wave of hunger you get, you know, when you feel that like deep hunger pang, like, oh man, I'm empty. That is your stomach actually emptying. This is going to get just a little, this is as graphic as I'll get for this crowd, but um, think back to maybe you have children who have vomited kind of violently. And have you ever seen or experienced yourself where you like, like, how did I actually like puke that far? Like my stomach, I thought was just this nice little leather pouch, like it just collects food. Like, how does this go 20 feet across the room? Your stomach is about an inch and a half of muscle. And in that instance, when your body really wants to get rid of something, your cardiac sphincter opens up between your esophagus and your, your, your stomach, and it contracts hard. Every time you eat, that same thing happens, but that valve stays closed, and the pyloric valve sphincter between your, your stomach and small intestine, that opens. And when your stomach is done digesting and churning that food, it contracts that hard, just violently, to get that food into your small intestine. And now you're empty, and the, the barometric receptors in your stomach, your GI system, give you that hunger cue, like, I'm empty. And so that's how we learn to, to, that it's time to eat. But again, I'm going to ask you to think logically for a second. If food is just then finishing entering your small intestine where it's absorbed, blood sugar is still going to be increasing. Blood lipids, blood amino acids are still going to be increasing for a couple more hours. You aren't hungry yet. Your stomach is just empty. They proved that almost half of adults, and get this, 90% of kids could learn that as soon as I have this sensation versus this sensation, Inanation hunger is when you actually feel like low blood sugar, you really feel like you're dropping and fading. That's when it's time to eat. And without tracking macros, without doing any dieting or any meal planning, this is intuitive eating, those people who learned in just six weeks with a glucometer that, wow, when I feel this way, my blood sugar is 90. When I feel this way, it's 80. When I'm about this far past this meal and I feel this way, it's 60 or so. And with coaching, they were taught, don't eat based on a clock, don't eat based on cravings and so forth, eat based on how you physiologically, interoceptively feel. Without any diet coaching, without any macros, tracking anything, people who got to that point, they, they 68% lost all the weight they wanted to lose without even having to do anything. That's intuitive eating, that's listening to your body. Me being a health scientist, kind of attracted more to the numbers and the data and, and black and white objective stuff. I think it's still very helpful to have some planning and things like that, but that is the ultimate goal, is to get to that point where all of this stuff is happening. And if you don't ever go through the process of learning what's in food from looking it up, tracking macros, you just don't know what's there. You just don't know. And a lot of this goes into some of the things we'll talk about last, your, your personality, psychology, and so forth. But uh, one, one of the things that I think is important is, is where we get our information. Kevin Hall, the uh, director of dietetics from the NIH, he understands that inpatient studies are just king. You cannot rely on self-reported data 
when, when you're dealing with nutrition. If you signed up for a study, which by the way, you're getting paid for, and you are supposed to be on, on one side of this, this study, you're a low carb dieter or high carb dieter, here's what you're supposed to eat, go home, pinky swear that that's all you're gonna eat, come back on Friday and we're gonna do all your measurements, how many people do you think lie? Like everybody? So he will only do research where it's inpatient studies, which is very expensive, and you have to sign up. Like, I'm going to give you three months of my life, and I'm going to go in this inpatient ward, and I'm only going to eat what you feed me. That's where they find that a low-fat, higher-carb diet wins every time. If you think carbs are the enemy, you do not understand the science. There is absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing good about a low-carb or no-carb diet. It will worsen your health. It will do, do just all kinds of horrible things to your metabolism and lean body mass. It will age you faster and so forth. But I said these things are intertwined a little bit, right? Because that's just taking the truth that we need to restrict and manage carbohydrates, and it throws the baby out with the bathwater and says, well, let's just get rid of all carbs. That's where you don't want to go. Still got to manage carbs, still got to count carbs, still got to be aware of what's right for you. But nobody ever got fat eating too many apples or bananas. Okay? Just doesn't happen. Try, try eating as much brown rice as you want and see if you gain weight. Not going to happen. Matter of fact, research shows that even when we get to the, the mesolimbic dopaminergic action of the brain where people rightly point to studies and say, look, sugar is like cocaine in the brain. There's no difference. You can be addicted to sugar. Absolutely. But do you know how most of those people eat sugar? Combined with fat in, in, in processed foods. You get highly palatable foods. Nobody has ever done that with just unprocessed, whole, healthy food. So let, let me skip through some of this stuff because I want to get you guys to some of the good stuff. So again, avoid low-carb dieting. Here's my little to-do list. Uh, understand the, the metabolic switch. Make sure you know how to get there and stay there because that is efficiency. Again, listen to this very carefully. If you add up the amount of calories you eat in a year, you can replicate that entirely and lose weight 50% faster one way or 50% slower. You're talking about doubling the results just by either getting to that metabolic switch and staying there or bouncing back and forth. One more quick study and then I'll get off this point. Had a client one time that came to me. We had about a week's notice before his consultation. And he said, man, I'm, I'm so excited. I, I got started ahead of time and I just started like cutting back where I, I thought I could. And since our phone call and today, a week later, I've lost 10 pounds. I'm like, wow. So this whole metabolic switch thing, you're already there. You used all those stored carbs in your body. Your body's in that body fat burning state. It's all great. And he said, okay, hang on. I didn't tell you the whole story. I was so happy that I lost those 10 pounds and I knew I was coming to see you today. So last night I kind of went out with my friends and we had some beer and had some pizza. And today I'm 10 pounds heavier. So did he gain and lose, lose and gain 10 pounds of body fat? Absolutely not. One or two pounds of body fat. The rest were those associated stored carbs and carbs hold three times their weight in water. So all of that weight that you lose initially and you gain back very quickly, it's like, oh my gosh, I just had one piece of pumpkin pie and I'm up two pounds. 
just go back to your normal eating and you'll be, you'll be down the next day. You, you, you attract water, you hold water based on those carbs. Don't think about and worry about day-to-day -day changes. Look at net weekly averages, net monthly averages, and so forth. Um, if you're gonna use time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, make it more of a 12-hour window. So let's move on to, I'm gonna skip over this uh, pretty quickly, but we're gonna talk about lean body mass and metabolic preservation. The one thing, maybe, I actually may skip through all these slides and just tell you directly what, what you need to know. By the way, this PowerPoint was 149 slides at 10 o'clock last night. I barely got it down to like 50, so that's just how, when you invite a speaker with ADHD, that's what happens, I apologize. One of these days, I'm gonna figure out how to do public speaking right. So metabolic preservation, how do I make sure? Because we all use that excuse, right? Like, well, gosh, now that I'm 53, my metabolism just isn't what it used to be, and on and on and on. Let's go through some, some data. The, do, you know, do you know what the Minnesota starvation study is? Back in World War II, we wanted to study like what was actually happening in concentration camps. So people signed up for the study and we literally starved people to death or close to it and we just wanted to see what would happen physiologically. And, a, and an experimental math university program decided to go back and review that data and kind of reverse engineer some of what was happening. And that has been replicated in every study since that looks at non-exercise activity, which is moving around. Like if you see me at my desk, my wife and I have desks that are across from each other, and she can sit in one spot and just doesn't move for eight hours straight. About every 10 minutes, I'm walking up and down and pacing, and I have to do this, and I'm fidgeting, and my foot's always tapping, and I'm just all over the place. Non-exercise act. Thank you for joining us for this week's public affairs program. I'm Jay Zimmer. From all of us at Midwest Communications Evansville, make it a great week.